Welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Pastor Dusty. I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune of Cormdale Church. And every Wednesday, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. And today, we're talking with a less prominent atheist and how he became a Christian. A couple weeks ago, we talked about a prominent atheist, Ayan Hirsi Ali, who has converted to Christianity. She published some stuff. She published some things. Today, we have a less prominent but still wonderful former atheist who's converted to Christianity, David Summit. David Summit, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, no one's writing articles about me because I became a Christian, but I think it's exciting for me. <laughs> it is exciting. So, yeah. And it's a good, it's a fun story of God's grace in your life. Um, first of all, for the listeners who don't even know who you are, uh, how did you get to Omaha, Nebraska? Uh, because you can't say no to the U.S. military. Uh, and my wife is in the Air Force. Uh, but we met and married in uh, Portland, Oregon. And she was just finishing medical school and is now doing residency here in Omaha at UNMC and at Offutt Air Force Base. And so that brought us to Omaha. Neither of us um, had ever been here, but we have loved it so far. And so that's how we found Quamdale Church. We're so glad you did. The, fl- the first conversation I had with you, I think Ryan Meyer brought you up to me and he's like, hey, this guy has something to say to you. And David held up a copy of a book from our book table and was like, this oh. is my face on this book. For and real? I, and I was like, you're no. right. It definitely is your face. It's the Shylin book, right? Dude. Yep. That's my one claim to fame is that my face was used on the cover of Shylin's book, The New Reformation. What a guy. Which was about ethnic unity, you know, yeah. was during that, that whole season. And I remember when they asked me to make that book cover, I knew they sent it a group text between me and... And then another guy named Kosana, he's the other guy who's on the cover. And I sort of knew what was probably happening there because I'm, I'm a, you know, a Caucasian guy and Kosana is, you know, he's actually from Africa. And so apparently I heard that when they were in the room trying to decide who's going to be on the cover, who's the whitest looking guy? Oh yeah. David. David. Yeah. David. He's, he's around and he'll probably do it for free. So when you guys started talking about that, all I heard in my head was Napoleon Dynamite. Going. <laughs> he has a pretty good face. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when I first met you, yeah, I was in the, in the atrium or the lobby at Quorum Deo. Um, but I was really fascinated to hear the story, David, of, uh, sort of how God brought you to faith in Jesus, because it was, it was a journey and, uh, I'd love to, that's what I want to sort of invite our listeners to engage with is just God's grace in your story. So man, take us back to, uh, the, the before Jesus days of your life. And, uh, I'd love to know, like, maybe we could just start right around that time actually, and then we'll go backwards and forwards. But what, you know, what was going on in your life at the point where you sort of were, um, confronted with the gospel and brought to faith in Jesus. Yeah. So it's been interesting cause I've been thinking this week about my story and, you know, there's a point where everything really changed for me in my mind. And so when I tell the story, it can seem like that's like the moment, you know, where, you know, everything happened before that was, you know, going one direction, then bang, God changed me. But I've been realizing all these different touch points that I had, they were leading up to that point. They were bringing me there to finally where I was broken and realized I needed Jesus. Um, but I had been, you know, considered myself an atheist for my whole life. And where everything changed was when I was 24 years old. And at that point I was in San Francisco and severely addicted to heroin and meth. I was an IV drug user. Um, pretty typical what you'd expect to see someone on the street at that point. You don't want to walk on the same 
side of the street as them because you think they're going to, you know, try to take your wallet or something. Um, I just looked like a crazy person. I had longer hair. Um, I was a picker. So my face was all picked up, that kind of thing. And I was sleeping on, uh, on a stone bench outside of a, a train station in South, uh, South San Francisco. And, you know, I woke up this one morning and I was inside the train station and this thought came through my head that maybe all those people were right. You know, I had been like in rehabs before. I'd heard people talk about God, been, you know, been to like 12 step meetings and saw one word on the wall, God, and I didn't want anything to do with that. But this thought came through my head. Maybe all those people were right. Maybe God is real. Wow. And then that's when it kind of hit me like a brick wall. Oh my goodness, God is real. And it was like kind of cheesy. Like I sort of like looked up at the sky because I'm like, oh, God's up there. Like I look up at the sky and I'm like, I hear you, you know? Mm. And that was kind of when everything changed. And so um, I entered into a uh, Christian rescue mission program in Oakland, California. Um, and it was one that my mom had told about, told me about. And uh, so I, I called her from a payphone uh, that morning after I had made this decision. And I made a collect call. Wait, payphones. A payphone. There's a payphone <laughs> in this train station. Man, that's, yeah. It's hard to find those these yeah. days. Yeah. And I had, you know, because I had nothing but the clothes on my back. I had lost, you know, I had a cell phone. I had lost that, all that kind of stuff. And so I made a collect call. First time uh, she denied the charges. And so I thought, well, maybe she thinks I'm in jail. So I tried again and, you know, asked you to like say your name when you make a collect <laughs> You're call. You're like, hey, mom, I'm not in jail. Yeah. There's probably some people who don't know that that's what you had to do when you made a collect call. But that's what I said. I said, I'm David, not, not in jail. jail. <laughs> <laughs> and she answered. Wow. And, uh, and I said, mom, I need help. And. She later told me it was the first time that she had ever heard me say that I needed help before because they had tried all kinds of interventions, mm. all that kind of stuff. But it was always, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I got this figured out. Like I have my own plan. Um, but I said, I need help. And she's probably, you know, feeling pretty skeptical. She was like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to come home. You know, I'm thinking like, yeah, like, let me come stay with you at your house, you know? Um, and she said, David, you have no home. And that was kind of the nail in the coffin. Like I got, I got nowhere else to go. So I was like, mm -hmm. all right, take me to that place city team that you told me about. And she suggested that program, not because she's a Christian, because she's an atheist, um, but it's free. And so that was the appeal. <laughs> that helps. Um, because Christians are the ones that will offer programs for free mm -hmm. rather than ones where you pay like $30,000 mm -hmm. a month, which, which my parents were not going to pay for. Um, and so I showed up to that program that day. Hey, so yeah, time out. You're when your mom. So there's people. I know there's people listening to this podcast who are dealing with children who are addicts. Yeah. yeah. When your mom said you have no home, was that sort of a, a place she had come to where it just felt like I need to have really firm boundaries with David because we've tried this before, or what? What got her to the place where she was sort of willing to to give you that sort of a, a real difficult decision? Yeah. So that's one thing that I credit my parents with is that. They did not enable me. And I know that I can't imagine how hard that must be for parents when your child is struggling and you just want to help them in any way you can. And so maybe that you feel like you want to give them money or let them stay in your house because you just don't want them to be out there. At least like you can kind of know where they're at and feel like you have some control over the situation. But my parents, you know, pretty early on, once they realized I was not going to play ball, they were like, all right, you know, we're kind of cutting you loose. Mm. And so when I was 18, uh, my mom had to kick me out. 
and change the locks and install extra locks on the house that I grew up in mm. because I continue to break in. Um, and so pretty much from that point, you know, the messaging was, we are here to help you, but we're not going to co-sign, you know, what you're trying to do. We're not going to give you money. We're not going to support mm. that. And so it was always like, if you want to go to a program, we're here for you. So that's the, that's the suggestion that I would give to parents because you have to meet your child or loved one at the intersection of willingness and opportunity. Most of the time, addicts and alcoholics are not willing to change because they're just in it. And so if that comes, then you have to, you know, take that opportunity, yeah. provide an avenue yeah. for them to get somewhere where they can get help. And so that's what it was for my mom that I knew that she was the one person I could call mm. who was going to take me to that program. And so she left work, came and picked me up and drove me over there. Wow. So when you're talking, I lived in San, or in the Bay Area for a while. Yep. The, the fun part here for <laughs> yeah, me, you, you've been there, is that when David and I were talking first, like our very first interaction, we were in the same parts of the Bay Area, which was fun. But when you're talking about the streets of San Francisco, are you talking like Battery Park and and that kind of stuff? All the all the places I was always told to stay away from is where you were, is what I'm hearing. Yeah. So I lived kind of uh, when I was still living indoors. I was uh, in Ingleside, which is like over by. Uh, community college of San Francisco, but I was hanging out in the tenderloin. Oh yeah. 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 Which is where you're not supposed to go. Yeah, that's where you don't yeah. go. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's where you don't stay go. out of there. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and to this day, it's just, you know, it's an open air drug market right. where you can pretty much go in and get whatever you want. Yeah. Um, so you, so mom takes you to city team at this point. Are you like, where, where are you at with the Lord? Like, is this still yeah. like a, Hey, I'm ready to surrender. Like I'm, I'm ready to like do this. Or is it sort of, is there a little bit of skepticism of like, we'll try this and see how it goes. I think at that point I was primed. I had, you know, my ears were open. My eyes were open. I was really ready for the gospel at that point because all of my perspective on what Christianity was before that was like stuff that I had seen from new atheism or, you know, like I had an aunt who had been like a Jehovah's witness for a while. And, you know, and I had, you know, my, one of my brother's friends had been LDS. And so I just like, I didn't really even know like the difference between all these different things. And so that was the first place where I actually showed up and was kind of ready to do whatever they asked me. You know, I, I was, I was kind of like, you know, I'm starting fresh. Like this is kind of, you know, what I'm doing now. And so it was the first place I actually learned what the Bible taught and who Jesus was, like what his message was. And it was powerful for me to read the gospels and see, oh, like I thought that, you know, Christians, it's all just about like, oh, you're the good people and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But Jesus actually went to people like me. That was powerful. Mm. I was like, wow, I'm actually the kind of person that he was coming after. Yeah. And he died for me so that I could be forgiven. That was the sweetest news I could ever hear. I was ready for that at that point. That's powerful. What I don't want to take the conversation in a, in a recovery direction, but I am interested, David, what was like, what did it take for you to sort of get clean from all the drugs you've been doing and sort of the life you've been living? Cause I realize I, I'm also realizing there's a lot of listeners to this podcast that are at the place where your parents might've been a few times where it's like, yep, we're trying this, but it didn't work last time. Or, you know, last time you ended up back on the streets or back mm -hmm. on drugs. And so what was it for you that sort of made a decisive shift there? Well, that's where I would count relationship with Jesus as the most important thing because I had been in secular rehabs before. And so there's a combination of just a lack of desire to actually change for me during those times. But it wasn't until I actually 
had a category for what a new life could be like, which was a new life in Christ until I showed up to that program. And so that's the most important thing for me because ultimately you can work on behavior modification. You can take one thing away from somebody, but addiction is like the most obvious form of idolatry that I can think of. Yeah. You know, like I worshiped heroin. Like I gave my time to it. It dictated who I spent time with. You know, everything was devoted to that. Mm. It, it was worshipful in that way. And so ultimately you can just take one thing away, but then you're going to find something else because we're worshiping people. I didn't realize it back then, but until I directed my worship to Jesus, then I feel like I still would have just found another thing. What helped you direct your worship to Jesus? Well, that program was, was so helpful and I just feel so blessed to have been a part of that program because it was a combination of getting to see the words on the page actually come to life around me, seeing people who um, were coming there at like, you know, the lowest point they could possibly be at and being welcomed in, given a place to stay, having all their needs taken care of. And then all these people kind of just like coming and offering their time to help. Uh, that was powerful. Seeing people come from churches who are really who are really living their faith in a tangible way because early on I could see there was something compelling about Jesus, but then to see people actually living it, then that's also powerful to convince me that there's nothing else out there that's like this, you know, because I, I still came at it from a skeptical point of view. So I wanted to, you know, read about apologetics and all that kind of stuff and have answers to questions that I had. But when you really see people living differently than the world, that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to just, you know, think about things like that, but to actually see people doing it, that was powerful. And so eventually, you know, I, I had to, I had to acknowledge kind of like Peter, like, where else am I going to go besides this? You know, like I, I kind of have to be all in on this thing. Like there's no, there's no two ways about it. Either I'm all in or I don't actually believe that this is what it's supposed to be. And then I had to come to the point where I realized that it was. There's a quote I often use <clears throat> from Leslie Newbegin where he talks about the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation that believes it. It's kind of what you're saying. Like what he's saying is what it takes for the gospel to be tangible and believable is to see some people that actually believe it and live it out. It's not just hearing it, but it's being able to say like, oh, I see these people and actually they're, it's changed them or it is changing them. And that's what you're describing is sort of the combination of word and life. Yeah, Absolutely. Talk about the post. So after you went through the program in Oakland and kind of were headed in a new direction, God, God then put some, a good local church in your life and, you know, some relationships that I know were formative to you. So what were some of the pieces that he used since then in the, in that eight years to sort of disciple you and help you grow? Yeah. I feel so fortunate that I came across great men who disciple me in particular one uh, who I'm thinking of whose name is Pat Smith. And he really instilled in me a love for the local church. And he was, he was part of a church uh, that would come and do these worship services every month. And then they also had a basketball league. And so they would, you know, come down. So I had those touch points there. So I'd see him coming down to our turf, you know, and meeting with guys, doing classes. And, uh, and then also like they would invite us out to go do things, go play basketball, but then he, you know, once I was, you know, kind of farther along, like he started to invite me into his home to see like him with his family and to, you know, catch things that couldn't be taught just to see him in the way that he loved his family. 
uh, that was powerful. And then he got me connected with his local church. And so I feel like that's really where, you know, some really incredible growth started to happen because I feel like I was kind of in like discipleship boot camp when I was in the program. You know, it's kind of like, hey, like we're we're serving like homeless people every day. We're reading the Bible like it's all brand new. Like I'm trying to kind of get disciplined in this new life. But then it was kind of like, you know, now it's time to let the, the rubber meet the road and go out and actually live this life outside of the program. And being connected to that local church was huge. And they continued to invest in me, give me opportunities to serve. And uh, yeah, I still think of those times very fondly. But I feel like it's been staying connected to a healthy local church that has been so important to help me continue to grow since then. That's huge. Like, I just want everybody to lock that in. Like (laughs) church has not been optional in your journey. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, they sent, somehow you got sent to Portland to, to run the city team mission there, which is another part of the story. Yep. And so after I graduated, eventually I came back. How long does that take? Like what's, what's, how long are you there in Oakland? Yeah. So I lived, I lived in their building so from 2015 to 2017, so for about two years, and then moved out. Is that how long the program takes? No, the program was 14 months, okay. and then after you graduate, I, I graduate in 14 months. Usually it's 12 months. Um, and then after you graduate, you can do what they call an internship, where you can you know, maybe stay on site. They'll actually give you a stipend, and you kind of help out with some aspect of uh, the programs. And so what they had me do was they had me kind of do like what they call church relations. Like we were trying to deepen our relationships with local churches. And so I just had like a list of churches in the area that I would go around. Some we already had connections with some, like maybe were ones that we were wanting to get to know. And so I got to see tons of churches, which was great. I get to see like how different people do worship and meet different leaders. And, and so that was really cool. But eventually they hired me, um, to do fundraising and it was to fix up this really old building that we were operating in, uh, which was in, in poor shape. And so that was really cool because I loved that place so much. Like I considered it a home for me. Mm-hmm. And so then to get to like raise money to, to fix it up. And they eventually did like successfully fix up that building and, um, got to be there for the, the ribbon cutting. That was, that was really awesome. But, um, eventually, uh, they asked me to, go up to Portland uh, because the executive director was stepping down up there and um, the programs were not in a good place at that point. It was a location that had become part of this organization city team um, in 1998. It was one of the oldest uh, rescue missions in the Portland area. It was originally um, an organization that had opened there in 1904. And so it was this kind of historic rescue mission that had been taken over by city team and never really got on its feet. So there'd been a few leaders who had tried to kind of get it going and um, it had never really uh, become mature as a, as an organization up there. And so there was kind of like no pressure. It was like, Hey, go up there. <laughs> if you know, if you can turn things around, great. If not, you know, Hey, in six months, we'll sell off the properties. We'll transition people into other programs and then come on back and keep doing the same thing you're doing. And so I was like, okay, why not? You know, I was single at the time. 
you know, why not go on a little adventure up to Portland, Oregon in the middle of 2020, my Yeah, dude. everybody wants to move you know? in 2020. Yeah. And so people are like, are you going to be safe there? It's Portland. You know, I imagine they just there's see some drugs. On, you know, Fox News and they're like, yeah. the city's on fire. Yeah, seriously, yeah. everything's burning down. <laughs> they're declaring independence from, That's right. <laughs> from the United States. There's 2020 yeah. and then there's 2020 in Portland. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, let's do that. So I moved up there and God was really gracious. And I feel like I just went there at the right time with the right energy, just kind of ready to, to, um, help things to move in a new direction up there. And so God was really kind. And I just kind of put my boots on the ground and, and wanted to kind of get my hands dirty. Um, I would do things like just kind of walking around the building and like picking up trash and just like talking to people, you know, just to kind of get to know people in the area. Would talk to the guys who were staying in the overnight shelter guys in the program, trying to figure out like how we could, shift the culture and really, you know, kind of bring it back to the foundation of like, Hey, we're here because we're serving Jesus and we want to see people know him and experience that. And so it was a tough time that, uh, that location had had a historic 20 year budget deficit. They had never balanced the budget. And within a year and a half, we were able to get in the black which well, was a huge feat. I'm yeah. voting for you for president. That's, then, right. that's our, right. Our country has that same problem. <laughs> You're next. That's a little bit bigger deficit. I don't know if I could handle that. Um, but, but the Lord was really kind and just put, you know, it was kind of some other people and just some, it was during a time where people were ready to, you know, kind of focus on something good. Yeah. Like there's just a lot of negativity going on. Let's focus on organizations that are doing good in the middle of a really difficult season. And so I think a lot of people were primed for that. And so we were able to, to kind of cultivate some of that energy and reach out to local churches, get connected. And then, um, unfortunately, like all the staff, they, they weren't too happy about me being up there. They kind of saw, I was like, Hey, you're bringing this guy in here. Like that. We don't know. We haven't met, which I totally understand. And all of the staff, you know, kind of one by one decided to leave. And so we had to kind of rebuild the team, kind of set a new strategic vision and, um, things went really well up there. And so that was another kind of formative experience of, of leadership for me that, uh, you know, they took a chance to put me up there. I really didn't have experience that, you know, you'd think of for someone who would be uh, qualified to, to take that role beyond, um, you know, I, I was a graduate and I had some fundraising experience and I was really all in on Jesus and kind of had all the zeal, you know, but none of the, you know, practical experience. But um, they said, yeah, go be executive director up there and see how it goes. It went really well. Uh, but then I met my wife and she was like, hey, if we're going to stay together, you know, I'm in the Air Force. We're probably gonna have to move. So so that was tough. But yeah. um, God provided a perfect replacement and he's doing great. So praise Sweet. God for that. What have been the key, uh, theological formation components for you? Cause you seem like you strike me as a guy that you, you know, you've been a Christian for eight years, but you have a really well-formed sort of theology and what, what has God used to sort of help to develop you in that area? So some of those guys who discipled me, um, so I'll go back to Pat Smith because he was, he was really the first one who he really showed me not just that the local church was important, but this was like an outflow of like good theology. Like that's why the local church is important to be a part of, you know, um, a healthy local church is because this is what we see in the New Testament. And so he was the first person to kind of break things down for me. We went through some little booklets. They were the build uh, first principles booklets. And it would just ask questions about context that I had never thought of before. And the more that these, these questions were asked about 
authorship and, and history and all that kind of stuff. I was like, wow, there's so much going on here that I, have, I don't know anything about. And so he was the, the first one to kind of open that door to me and, and just kind of started to care about theology and wanting to get the Bible right. And so I had, I had one guy who I was meeting with, who was a pastor who I would just read through the new Testament. I would just write down questions anytime something came up and they came up all the time. Then we'd sit down and just ask him, you know, like I, I remember there's this funny moment where I was like, so is God totally in control or do we have free will? And he was like, that's the question that kids in seminary have been asking for <laughs> centuries. And now I look back, I'm like, yeah, just, you know, kind of naive, like just first coming across those big questions that yeah. people grapple with. And yeah. so that was, that was really cool. But uh, yeah, so, ask them. so yeah, so I just started to find those guys who I knew like in my own circle, but then also just, you know, faithful leaders who produced good materials online that I could look to and trust to, to learn more about theology. What I like that you're describing there is it's not you in your basement with a stack of books. There's there's a community. Mm -hmm. There's there's mentors. There are people you're dialoguing with. And that seems to me to be like, anytime I meet somebody who's like, this guy's been pretty well-formed theologically, it seems like it's always been communal rather than, let me just go dig in the library and read a bunch of things on my own. Yeah. Um, so it's just fun to hear that that story. You seem very eager, David, and, and you keep hungering for more. You want more. Now you're here. Um, we're rubbing shoulders more. What are you? What are you really anticipating? What are you excited for for the next couple of years of your walk with Jesus? Well, I guess you know I've I've just really wanted to continue to grow and serve whatever in whatever way that God wants me to. And so it seemed like for a season that was serving in the rescue mission field, and I feel like God really blessed that time. But more and more, I feel like my attention and, and motivation has been towards the local church. And, and probably part of that is just, I feel so blessed to have been a part of such great local churches, but I, I know that that's also not everyone's experience. Yeah. Yeah. You're and, right. uh, and so I want to see the local church expand, you know, healthy churches, uh, who care about theology and care about discipleship and care about helping people to experience like the familial atmosphere that someone should in a church. And so I guess what I'm excited about is kind of the, um, you know, the opportunity hopefully in the next few years to be a part of either a church plant or, or revitalization of some kind. That's kind of where my attention has been more directed to recently. And so that's why this pastoral residency that I'm doing here at Cormdale was, was really appealing and a starting seminary at Midwestern. And so that's kind of, you know, what's starting to, to um, you know, spin around in my mind is what that could look like. Uh, and so I'm really hopeful that, that that's something that could come to fruition here in the next few years. A few things that we haven't talked about, but should <laughs> you drive a pretty awesome little roadster that's a convertible. Yep. And when you first pulled up, I was like, well, what's this dude doing driving yeah. like a pretty sweet car up here? <laughs> Give me one of those. Gigs. <laughs> How do I get one of those? <laughs> then I found out the story and I was like, oh, well, that's a cool story. Why do you drive that little car? Yeah. You know, it's always one of those things where I'm like, should I drive this car? Because <laughs> I feel like it's right in between. Like, it's not too fancy. No, that I think you should pop the clutch a lot. That's what I think. Just <laughs> yeah, go. it's not Let's like, go. it's not like so fancy that someone's going to be exactly. going to stumble because of it, but it's yeah. fancy enough that people are like, what, hey, what'd you do to get that? Exactly. I stumbled a little bit today driving yeah. a lot. <laughs> 
So I drive a Honda S2000. And you know, there are people who actually really love Honda S2000s. I don't even know if I appreciate it enough to have There's one. like an enthusiast community. Yeah, there yes, is. Absolutely. Um, if you have like a low mileage one, you can get, oh man, like people pay a lot of money for it. Uh, but how I got it is, you know, to go back to the program I was in, first week there, you know, fresh off the street, uh, this church was coming to do this worship service every month. And this one month in particular, a couple of guys came, a guy named Paul Simpson, a guy named Chung Mon Kim. And Paul had been a part of this church. He was a poet, incredible poet. He came there to do poetry that night in the shelter. And then he invited his buddy Chung Mon, who was a, a Christian rapper, to come with him. And so these guys are doing this stuff in the shelter. I'm listening. I'm like, wow, this is powerful. These guys are kind of like sharing testimony and like, you know, I loved hip hop music, had made hip hop music, and these guys are doing that and they're talking about Jesus and I'd never heard anybody do that before. And so I connected with them afterwards and both of those guys became super close friends of mine. And Chung Mon, uh, you know, he he's worked in ministry. You know, he's not like a guy who has like a ton of money or anything, but he loved S2000s. He really wanted me, saved up his money, bought this car, had it for a while. And I knew he had it. And then he got married and I don't think his wife probably really liked driving it much. I knew it was just kind of sitting in his garage in California. And so <laughs> I was over at his house and this is after I moved up to Portland. And so I'm down there and I just see it in his garage. I'm like, Hey man, how much would you, would you charge for that thing? <laughs> I'm just curious. Yeah. I thought it was a cool car, but right. like I wasn't going to buy it. I was just <laughs> curious. And he's like, oh, I don't know. I have to think about it. It was like, all right, whatever. Just, you know, let me know whatever, whatever you decide. And he calls me a couple days later and he's like, Hey man, I want to give you the car. I'm like what? He's like, no, I've been praying about this actually before you even asked. And I've been wanting to give it to someone who I've like mentored, discipled. And, and so I think maybe I should just give it to you. I'm like, Oh my goodness. Well, how can you turn that down? Seriously, yeah. The Lord gave you a car. Yeah. So if you see like a pastor with a fancy thing, sometimes it was a gift. Oh, yeah. absolutely. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, there's some things that maybe like wouldn't be, you know, maybe you don't want to accept, you know, per se, but this was something that it was a sweet thing that, that, you know, I think, you know, his heart was really just that he wanted to bless somebody with it. And so stud, I didn't know how to drive stick. I had to fly down to California in two days, learn how to drive stick and drive it all the way back to back up to it's Portland. Good place to learn how to drive a stick. Let's say, yeah, yeah, you gotta be, you, the only way to learn is under fire. Yes. That's right. Uh, all right. Related question. You're also a rapper. You said you made hip hop music and you're not kidding. Yeah, that's true. You you can drop some drop some bars. Yeah. For a guy who gets picked for a book cover cuz he's a white guy. Yeah. But then you produce some hip hop. Yeah. You're Let's you're a multi multi-talented dude. <laughs> that's right. Um and I, you know, can't escape the comparisons to like, you know, Eminem or Macklemore. That's okay. <laughs> but hey, you take him in that world. That's right. And so, yeah, when I was growing up, I I really loved hip hop music and that was kind of part of like being a part of like drug culture was like listening to hip hop music and it's kind of like part of it, you know? Um, and so I, I, you know, made hip hop music with some friends of mine and, you know, I, I have the same name actually, which is lifted L I F T I D that I used back then. And how I originally got the name was when I was 13, I was hanging out with some friends, we're getting high and my, I'm trying to think of a graffiti name actually. <laughs> and I'm like not thinking of anything. My buddy's like, well, what do you like to do? And my best answer, I'm 13 years old. I'm like, I like to get high. He was like, oh, you get lifted. You're lifted. Just use that. I was like, okay. That was my name. Wow. That was, that was my rap name. And so 
So I made rap music. You and then, redeemed that name apparently. Yeah. So, so that's, that's kind of the thing is like, then once I became a believer, I met this guy Chumon and he was the one who encouraged me uh, to use those gifts for God. He actually has a ministry called divine kingdom yeah. where he disciples Christian, you know, artists. And so he meets me in a, in a shelter and I'm like, Hey man, I just like am wanting to give my life to God. And I love hip hop music and I love basketball because he, he's a guy who loves basketball too. Like the three things that like he gets most excited about, there's like no, no, you know, nothing I could have said that would have made him happier. And so he was the one who encouraged me to use my gifts for the glory of God. And so I was trying to think about like, well, shall I like change my name? Should I like think of a new name? You know, cause like, that's kind of like the connotation that I had before was like, it's about getting high. And then I decided that, you know, I was thinking about like the, the music that I was starting to write as a believer. It was actually really more about like humbling myself. Cause you, know, you think of most rap music, it's like, it's very prideful. Like you're, it's all about elevating yourself. Yeah. Like battle rapping is just saying how much better you are than the other guy. Yeah. Um, but most of it is about like, oh, I have more money than you. I get more girls than you, that kind of thing. I was like, actually, most of what I started to write about was like humbling myself. Like this is who I was, you know, and then glorifying God, like lifting him up. Right. So like humbling myself, lifting up the name of Jesus. I was like, all right, that's what the name means now. Like that's actually what's getting lifted now is like the name of Jesus. Like Music is about humbling myself instead of boasting and then actually boasting in Christ. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. It is pretty great. It's kind of like when Jesus meets Peter and he's like, oh, your name's Peter. Yeah, that's cool. Cause on this rock, I'm going to build my church. You know, there you it's go. like there's Jesus does this for people is take names and give them new meaning. And yeah, that's pretty powerful. One of the most beautiful themes in this entire conversation is the power of the local church. For me, that's just deeply encouraging, obviously as a pastor but also just how important relationship is, discipleship is, and just genuine time. Like everything you're describing in your story is, well, then this guy spent a lot of time with me, and then this guy spent a lot of time with me. And, and in that, there's also a humility that you have, an eagerness that you have to be learning. And so I'm just, I'm encouraged deeply by the power of relationship, the power of connection, coupled with your desire to learn, and your humility to come under those men back then. And uh, now that you're here, this church. And so uh, that's just really encouraging to me. And I really want listeners to catch that, that you have to be connected to other people along the way. Yeah. David, thanks for taking the time to come on and tell your story and encourage listeners and encourage us with your presence and with God's grace in your life. Absolutely. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in, and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners, so if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. Within I'm deep found in the rebound and I'm free now to be a slave to him Living with the father above Nothing can separate me from a snuffer Amazed by every little thing that he does Clean but it seem like a feeling of buzz Haunt for the sake of faith This ain't no paper chest It's a great escape and I'm here to make a statement I'm saved by his grace I'm confident He came to the world and conquered it Cold like a back of my